Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. And so glad that you are here today because we've got lots of good news about the good news to share. Of course, if you're a football fan, the good news is coming up on Sunday, it's the big game. And here at the Bottom Line Show, we refer to it as the Super Bowl. I know that there are a lot of places where I think contractually you're not allowed to. Like if you, I mean, the NFL is really tough about this. I understand that if you are like a restaurant owner or something like that and you want to show uh, the big game on the screen, if you don't pay, I think CBS has the rights to it this year, but if you don't pay the uh, the fee to uh, to show the game, I, I, I understand it. You know, I mean, that they, it's a business and people don't understand there are performance royalties that have to be paid and appearance royalties. And that's why if you're watching a television program and they're promoting a certain event that's been pre-recorded, but they don't have the rights to use that stuff in the promo. They'll show stock pictures of your favorite artist, but it's not anything from the event because they they paid for the show, but not for the ability to promote it. So, uh, but we call it the Super Bowl here because we've been on the bottom line shows our 13th year being on the air, and we've never heard from the NFL telling us not to. So we're going to ask for forgiveness instead of permission. How about that? Um, because the Super Bowl is coming up, a couple of things are also happening as well. Um, there's a little bit of controversy around the Super Bowl, especially around the pregame. I want to get into that in the second hour of the program as to why we in the body of Christ, I believe, don't need to necessarily fan the flames of that controversy, but rather we can look at what is really going on in the controversial aspect and, and see a faith component to it that once you know the history and the timeline of how all these things came together, you might say, oh, okay, well, that that makes sense, and I don't have to be offended by that today. Um, also, we're going to have a, a conversation with Jerry Jenkins, Jerry B. Jenkins, of course, the father of Dallas Jenkins, who is the creator of The Chosen. The Chosen Season 4 is now in theaters. As a matter of fact, they just started again with next round two of airings. We had uh, three uh, very fortunate bottom line show winners, I think it was two. We had a couple of uh, winners who had a chance to go this past weekend where we had tickets for The Chosen. And lo and behold, um, those tickets you know, went really quickly. I mean, it was a very, very popular uh, event. But the theatrical release of The Chosen Season 4 came in second at the box office last week. Like number two overall. <laughs> it's been a long time since a faith-based movie did that well at the box office. But man, we th- it was episodes one, two, and three. People were flocking to theaters to see it on the big screen. And now the great news is if you saw it last week and you loved episodes one, two, and three, buy another ticket, go back and see episodes four, five, and six this weekend. Jerry Jenkins is going to join me and we're going to commemorate season three of The Chosen with the novel that he wrote, the novelized account of the entire season. And we've got not one, not two, but three copies of that book we'll be giving away today at 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. First, though, just an anomaly that I, I wanted to uh, kick off the program with because I think it's very uh, it's very interesting to me. Uh, on Monday, February the 5th, uh, the country singer Toby Keith passed away. If you know anything about country music, uh, the contemporary artist, Toby was 62, and so... He kind of came up in the late 80s and early 90s, was part of that wave, that class of country singers. He had been uh, uh, diagnosed with stomach cancer and had been battling it for several years. I was amazed. October 21 is when it first happened. Uh, you know, it, it basically, it, I was amazed to see the outpouring of tributes and support 
and you know just people who were heartbroken over Toby Keith. I'll be honest with you, I did not know. I was familiar with his work. How do you like me now? We'll put a Buddha in your past. I mean, I know Toby Keith music, but how is it that this guy from Clinton, Oklahoma, who had a three-decade career, who worked in the oil fields of Oklahoma, actually played semi-pro football. There was a team called the Oklahoma City Drillers, and he played for them. But in the 1990s, his star was finally shown. He uh, released his debut album in 1993, and it went platinum. I should have been a cowboy. Uh, Beer for my horses, courtesy of the red, white, and blue, the one I just mangled. He sold 40 million albums, had 42 top 10 hits, 32 number ones in country music. Male Vocalist of the Year, Academy of Country Music in 2001. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2015. He even got a National Medal of the Arts from Donald Trump in 2021 as well. Big old patriotic guy who recently played. He played at Dolby Live uh, at Park MGM in Las Vegas. Played three shows in a row as recently as December 14th. But I saw people of all different backgrounds eulogizing this guy, and I thought, I didn't realize Toby Keith was that popular, number one. But two, that he was a man of faith. He uh, gave an interview to uh, the CBS affiliate in Oklahoma City, KWTV, uh, on January 24th. And he was asked, you know, what, what's it like for what you're going through right now? And he said, I, I'm not going to lie. My battling cancer, there have been a lot of dark hallways. And then he was asked, well, how do you make your way through those dark hallways? And he said, quite frankly, faith. You have to have faith. You take it for granted on the days things are good, of course, but you lean into it on the days that are bad. And this journey has taught me to lean a little more every day. Thank the Lord I have faith. Um, you know, it's amazing to see when he, he says, when I talk about, I pray and lean into my faith. And then he says, you do what you got to do when you're going through stuff. You have to accept that this is what your lot is. And he said, when he was going through his uh, first couple of rounds of chemo, he said, that's when he just realized, hey, I got to, this is it. I got to lean into it. You know, I mean, if you just wait for it to go away, cancer is not going away. But then once I got my brain wrapped around where I was and I was going through chemo, it got to the point where I was literally comfortable with whatever happened. I was good either way. What a healthy perspective. And uh, uh, we lift up uh, the family of Toby Keith and we uh, thank the Lord for his outspoken faith, especially in those final days of his life. And uh, brother, uh, we look forward to seeing you on the other side. Toby Keith uh, passed away the result of cancer uh, at the age of 62. He fought the good fight. He ran the race. He kept the faith. That's something that's uh, tough for Christians to do in difficult days like these. But what about pastors? So many pastors are having a hard time with staying in the ministry and the pastor. Pastoral burnout, all-time high, tougher and tougher to find pastors to stay the course all the way through. On the other side of this break, Pastor Mark Dance is going to join me, and we're going to get into a conversation about why it is um, that this is happening and how we can encourage those who are called to full-time ministry to finish well to start well, to stay the course. He's written a book called Start to Finish, The Pastor's Guide to Leading a Resilient Life in Ministry. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Pastor Mark Dance joins me next as The Bottom Line continues. Personal injury attorney Stephanie Cover of Cover Law will fight for justice on your behalf. She has to fight because no insurance company will willingly pay what you've lost after an accident. 
When you're in an accident, you take legal action simply to be restored to where you were prior to your injuries. Money may be needed for medical treatment, financial restitution for lost time at work, or any other thing that you've lost as a direct result of the injury. Stephanie's desire is for justice, to find what was taken from you due to your injury and have it restored for you. Stephanie will become your advocate, passionately helping you make sure that your doctor's appointments are productive, the insurance companies are being honest, and she'll make those calls that you don't have time for. Go with K. Bright's trusted personal injury attorney who will help make you whole again. Stephanie Cover at kbrightradio.com slash C-O-V-E-R and get back to your life. Well, today on The Bottom Line, we're going to take a look at an issue uh, that in, is impacting churches. It's impacting believers' lives all over the country. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with congregants per se, but it really has something to do with the pastors who are leading these congregations. Pastoral burnout is literally at an all-time high. And, and oftentimes, you know, there have been many pastors, even pastors that we've interviewed here on The Bottom Line Show, who started out in pastoral ministry and then were called to a different ministry, and you know, it's, that, that's the way God leads people. But what do you say when the pastor says, look, I, I, my family is suffering because of the burnout that I'm dealing here. I'm suffering. I mean, we see people engaging in moral failure all the time these days, and you have to ask the question, well, basically, what, what's going on here and how can we turn this tide around? Uh, Dr. Mark Dance has been studying pastoral ministry and pastoral care for nearly 30 years. He served as a lead pastor and planner before he launched Lifeway Pastors and the Care for Pastors Network and Oklahoma's Ministry Pipeline. He currently serves as director of pastoral wellness for Guidestone Financial Resources, and he's the author of a brand new book that I think will uh, will help us as congregants and also maybe use church councils and even pastors too, understand why we're seeing so much pastoral burnout and what we can do to stop it. The book is called Start to Finish, The Pastor's Guide to Leading a Resilient Life and Ministry. And we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. Mark Dance, welcome to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you, Roger. Happy to be here. Well, I'm I'm happy to have you here. I wish we didn't have to have this conversation about this topic, but I am grateful that you've been studying this, that you've been living this, and you're beginning to see it too. Is it younger pastors that are burning out? Is it older pastors? Kind of give us, paint a picture for us, if you will, of what we're talking about in terms of pastoral burnout. Well, yeah, I think uh, it's across the board. You have uh, issues that really are go back to the beginning of the church. And so that's what makes the Bible so practical and relevant for today, because even even back when Paul was discipling Timothy two times, he said, pay attention to your life. He starts with life. The first time in Acts 20, he says, pay, pay attention to your life and your flock, you know, guard your flock. That's Acts 20. He says, it's the last time I'll, I'll ever see you face to face. And so, but he has a follow-up letter, 1 Timothy, and he says it again, 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to your life. And this time he adds teaching. So teaching and flock, you know, those are things we learn about in seminary. Paying attention to our life uh, also can be translated self. That's, uh, you know, those are soft skills that we learn along the way. And I think the last, three years, pastors in particular, but people in general have been uh, stressed out and burnt out more than I've seen in my 36 years of ministry, hmm. just because of the compound 
you know, well-documented stresses of political pressure, social pressure, and of course, all things COVID. And so uh, the pastors who've taken care of their selves have paid attention to their lives as well as their flock and doctrine have come out of that uh, somewhat stronger, resilient, and full of joy. But then some went to an emergency stage and stayed there and, and neglected themselves, even for admirable reasons. But, uh, you know, it, on the other side of that, they're just kind of limping along. And some, as you said earlier, uh, may not finish the race at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if they hadn't paid attention to the things that that can keep them healthy and resilient. A couple of decades ago, Mark, I was talking with a long-term missionary. She had grown up in a missionary family. Her parents were missionaries. She had gone into missionaries. And she was talking about, this is 20 years ago, was talking about how when it came to missionary work overseas, that type of thing, that the average life expectancy of a missionary typically was lifetime. I mean, if you got into it, this is your calling and you did it for 30, 40 years. She was discovering that for our generation, when people got into mission work, they did it for like an average of five years. And then they moved on. And I thought, well, what would change? I mean, why, I mean, I understand people going on short-term missions and things like that, but I kind of get the sense too that the people who are graduating from seminary, going into pastoral ministry, or maybe, maybe even being called up in their own churches, um, when I accepted the call, it was say, hey, this is a lifetime calling. I mean, this is something I'm, I'm signing up for. The, this is a covenant just like my marriage, just like everything else. And I kind of get the sense that maybe more pastors entered into ministry work with a lease with option to buy mentality. Is that your experience as well? Uh, not really. I, in, in my, you know, I started uh, pastoring churches in 1987 and was a lead pastor for 27 years. And and had been in pastoral ministry the last uh, almost nine years, and everyone is different. Okay, let's just say that. So there's no broad strokes that apply to everyone. But I mm-hmm. I don't sense that they're weighing out options. I think that they're when they say yes to God's call, they're usually teenagers, right? But that's that's the norm. When they say uh, you know yes to God's call to ministry, they don't necessarily know if they want to be in a local church on the mission field, etc. But it's a blank check, and they surrender everything. They they do the same at their wedding. And yet you're right. There's a there are, there's a lot of attrition and turnover. And I'm I actually spoke today this morning with one of the leaders, the development leader from one of our mission boards. We have an international mission board and a North American mission board, both together responsible for over 6,000 missionaries. And the pipeline uh, that these missionary candidates go through has all, uh, they they help them pay attention to the things we talked about, which I I define as in the book uh, as, you know, old school, great commandment, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's everything. That's the, the key word is all, you know, so <laughs> yeah. physical, mental, spiritual, emotional. So I think uh, as they help them prepare for the mission field, 
and seminaries and colleges and others prepare people for a life of ministry. They look at those things, and I'm actually, I actually think I have room to be excited and optimistic about the fact that the younger pastors are more open to talking about mental and physical and financial health and all those landmines yeah. than the older pastors like like me who would do anything to talk about spiritual health, but not, you know, don't talk about mental health, don't talk about marital health, financial health. And so they're open to that because, you know, younger younger adults in general, just they don't flinch and blush at the things we used to, right? <laughs> right. And so, and so Guidestone, where I work, has, you know, insurance for ministers and missionaries. Uh, our mental health claims have gone up 40% in the last three years. Since COVID oh started, our mental health claims have gone up 40%. Yeah. When I Incredible. found that out, I was like, what's going on? Yeah, let's push the, let's push the, the alert button. Mm-hmm. But then as a dig deeper, you know, part of that's obviously COVID. And, and, and this is not just for ministers. It's also for their spouses and their kids. So all told, 40% increase. And, and we have about, we serve about 250,000 uh, members. But some of that, uh, the other side of that coin is that younger, as younger ministers take those places on in the church, on the mission field, they're actually paying closer attention to their mental health. The reason, mm. the, part of the reason the, the claims are going up is because they're less reluctant to get help when they need it. Interesting. And so I'm very optimistic about, about the fact that a younger group of ministers is now just naturally taking the place of those that are retiring, uh, either from ministry or going to heaven. Then they're uh, they're eager to get mentors. They're eager to um, you know to take their own pulse to make sure that they're healthy and. Whereas before, I think when I turned in the ministry, it was like, hey, uh, the church comes first, it comes for your family, it comes for your own health. And, and you just kind of got two, ex- you, you can have two extremes. One is to obsess about yourself and the other is to, you know, ignore or even uh, neglect yourself. And the Bible teaches neither. The Bible's saying, pay close attention to your life. And then the great, even the great commandment says, you know, your first, your first priority is your first love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everybody knows that's the top priority, the first and greatest commandment. But it says the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. It's that last word in the in the second commandment that we sometimes overlook, which can sound and feel touchy feely, even mm-hmm. self centered. But to be honest, Roger, you know, self-care is strategic. It's not selfish. If we want to finish the race and accelerate through the the finish line, then we're going to have to practice self-care. Every time I get on an airplane, every time you get on an airplane, every time anybody gets on any airplane, we're going to get the same speech. 
oxygen mask drops, put it on yourself yep. first. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you're not doing this any good passed out on this plane. You know, you're not helping anybody <laughs> right. if you're passed out. <laughs> and so I just want to tell pastors, listen, put the oxygen mask on, take, take a day off, not because you think you need it, but because God ordered you to in the fourth commandment, and you're just like everybody else. You need rest. You need to sleep every night. You need to take care of your physical health, emotional health, relational health. And in, 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 the, in the coolest scripture that summarizes all this is 1 Timothy 4.16, that second pay attention verse, because it says, pay close attention to your life and your teaching or doctrine. Persevere in these things. For in doing this, you save not only yourself, but also your hearers. So, so it's not just, hey, take care of yourself for yourself, say, but also for your hearers. And, you, you know, we don't save anybody from their sins, but we can save them from our stupidity. And <laughs> right. the collateral, Very true. The, the collateral uh, blessing of self-care, soul care, is, is great. But, you know, the collateral damage of neglecting where erosion comes in and then, you know, we have this big meltdown um, or we're tagging out, you know, of course there's a lot of collateral damage from that. And usually that sneaks up on us mm-hmm. and it's not intentional, but that's what the book's about is how can we start well, stay well and finish well, and just go into old school. First half of books about the first commandment, second, you know, heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a chapter for each. Second, it's about the second commandment, which is about who to love more. You, you know, God says, I'm first. That's the first half of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Love me first. If you're married, there's your second love. You know, that concentric circles, we all know it. Your family, you neglect them, you're worse than an unbeliever, Paul tells right. Timothy. Mm-hmm. Your, ne- your next door neighbor, neighbor across the street, across the world, all that. But it's a pecking order that God gives us. And these, these simple instructions are not new. You know, if it, someone once said, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. You know? <laughs> and so uh, there, are no, there are no secrets or shortcuts to pastoral resilience and, or, or to avoid burnout. You just have to go with the basic instructions of God's Word. Take care of yourself. Take care of your relationships. And you'll be a great commandment pastor. So, and that that's is what it's then, about. Well, that's the key to having that resilient life, but also having a resilient ministry that Dr. Mark Dance has written about. Mark, this is a great resource. And I know whether it's a young pastor who's just starting out, maybe someone who just graduated seminary is moving into that first pastoral call, or someone who's maybe 10, 15, 20 years into it and is wondering, gosh, do I have what it takes to finish the race? I'll throw a little First Corinthians in on there too and talk about, you know, the Apostle Paul saying, hey, look, everybody who starts to run the race of faith runs to win. I mean, we, we, and, you, and if you're yeah. going to win, you have to finish, you know, so that's that resilience is key. The book is called Start to Finish, The Pastor's Guide to Leading a Resilient Life in Ministry, and we've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Mark, thank you so much for the work that you put into this. This is a great resource that is going to help a lot of people in, especially in ministry or in congregations where they're saying, why do our pastors keep leaving their burning out? Uh, this will be a, a great mm. recommended resource for call committees, too, I would imagine. But thanks so much for writing it, and thanks so much for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. You're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
Certainly an encouraging conversation, and I'm grateful to Mark Dams for not only writing this book, but actually giving us a copy to give away here on this Good News Friday. Uh, get this book as an encouragement for your pastor. Start to finish The Pastor's Guide to Leading a Resilient Life and Ministry. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. My thanks again to Pastor Mark Dance for joining me today here on The Bottom Line. This is one of those weeks where I know a lot of pastors will look at what's coming up on Sunday and say, ah, oh, man, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I, how many people are going to be, you know, not involved in what we're doing here in the pulpit? But that's not the only reason why so many pastors are leaving the pastorate. And Mark Dance, who was a lead pastor and planter for 27 years before launching the Care for Pastors Network, uh, Oklahoma's Ministry Pipeline, uh, and also Lifeway Pastors, of course, with the, uh, he cur currently serves as Director of Pastoral Wellness at Guidestone Financial Resources. Um, he's written a book called Start to Finish, the, the Pastor's Guide to Leading a Resilient Life in Ministry. It's an excellent book, uh, speaking from pastoral experience, but if you think your pastor needs some encouragement, this is a resource, I want you to have it. It's Good News Friday. Come and get it. Crystal's standing by, Teresa's standing by, Joel's standing by to take your calls. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. Take a quick break, and when we come back, good news on this Good News Friday about not only the Super Bowl, but also this Super Bowl weekend is the second weekend of release for season four of The Chosen. And uh, the season four reviews from episodes one, two, and three are phenomenal. What about uh, what, what people are still now discovering this? They're fighting it on Netflix. They're watching seasons one, two, and three as well uh, on the stream. I Will Give You Rest is the novel based on season three of the critically acclaimed TV series, uh, The Chosen. And Jerry B. Jenkins is the author of that. We're going to get into a conversation with Jerry about that topic. Coming up next as the bottom line continues. Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show, or I should say welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the program. I'm Roger Marsh, your tour guide for the next half hour. If you're listening to KCBC, this is the live part of the program for y'all. Uh, for everybody else who is on the network here, the Bottom Line Show airs for 90 minutes each and every day on our flagship affiliate KBRT in Los Angeles and San Diego and Orange County and Riverside and everywhere else that we air. And uh, welcome to our friends in Birmingham as well. So glad to be on with the WXJC uh, and WYDE family. Um, today here on the program, since it's Super Bowl weekend, um, we know also that there's a big event happening in theaters, and that is season four of The Chosen is releasing episodes four, five, and six. Last week, the theatrical release of episodes one, two, and three actually ranked second in terms of ticket sales. Uh, it was number two at the box office, and we're anticipating another big weekend. And in anticipation of that, I want to revisit a conversation I had with Dallas Jenkins' dad, Jerry B. Jenkins. You might have heard of him. He uh, wrote the Left Behind series, and he's also a very prolific uh, biographer as well. He has written the novelization versions of The Chosen uh, for seasons one and two, and uh, did so for season three. And so to commemorate uh, what, what's happening in the theaters this weekend with The Chosen Season 4. Can revisit my conversation with Jerry B. Jenkins right now about The Chosen Season 3, the novel, and I Will Give You Rest. And by the way, we have not one, not two, but since it's Season 3, we have three copies of this book that we're giving away today. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. 
800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Okay, let's revisit this conversation with Jerry Jenkins talking about The Chosen here on The Bottom Line. Well, a special guest joining me today here on The Bottom Line Show, talking about all things chosen. Jerry B. Jenkins is with me today here on The Bottom Line. And if you're listening on terrestrial radio, you don't see this vision that I see for My Hope Now, which is Jerry B. Jenkins repping chosen merch. I mean, you are all in it, Jerry Jenkins. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. Thanks, Roger. Always good to be with you. Well, the merch I'm talking about, if you go to myhopenow.com, you'll see that he's wearing a chosen hoodie with the, you know, the black with the cool little uh, teal uh, logo on that too. This is great. You'll never have to buy clothes again, right? As long as Dallas keeps having these successes. That's exactly right. If there's any benefit to this, that's it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all kidding aside, of course, uh, Jerry Jenkins has been given the task of writing some of the most challenging novels ever of uh, the Left Behind series, of course, which sold tens of fifties of millions of copies was based on the book of Revelation. No small uh, feat to take that and turn it into a novelized form and that the became a very, very popular series. And now he's kind of working backwards on The Chosen with regard to, here's the series, of course, based on the harmony parts of scripture that are telling the story of Jesus. And then Jerry gets the unenviable task of going back and turning it into a novel, knowing that everybody's already seen the TV show. Season three novel just released. Uh, what's the response been initially to this, Jerry? It's been really gratifying. Uh, a lot of readers are telling me that they saw the series and, and a lot of things flash by quickly and they would like to rehearse those. You know, they, they might go back and watch them again, but they don't quite get it or they don't hear some of the dialogue. And uh, I'm not only uh, trying to make that clear, what, what's going on, but I'm trying to add more plausible uh, imagination to it too, mm. so that you get inner monologue from the characters, their their thoughts, their intentions, motivations. And uh, the Dallas and his co-writers have really given me a freedom to do that. At first, I was a little intimidated. I wanted to just pretty much mirror what you see on the screen. Right. And when we do get to those those scenes that are on the screen, I want them to be, you know, at, pretty accurate because it always bothers me when I read a book and then watch a movie and I don't quite see the connection. Mm-hmm. But they, they they want me to to add even more characters and dialogue and anything that that is plausibly uh, imaginable. That must be a real uh, gratifying experience for you. I mean, no, knowing that you have that kind of license uh, to not have to work within certain parameters. Uh, do you ever find yourself, I know we've we've described it, and I use your phrase often, that you're more of a seat of the pants type of guy where you you send your characters on a journey and find out where it leads them. Uh, do you ever find yourself getting kind of so far off the rail and you're like, wait, maybe we don't need those two extra characters in the book? Yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll find myself, you know, chasing a rabbit and realizing it's going nowhere. Um but that's that's what makes you an author. That's the fun of it is to to know yeah. what to cut and what to keep. Uh, but it's great fun to do do it this way. And uh, you know the the sequence is already there. The story is there from the Bible, and uh, and the the writers of the chosen are so creative. Um, it, it's just fun to be involved in it. Jerry B. Jenkins is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, the novel for uh, season three of The Chosen, The Chosen, and I Will Give You Rest, which is a novel based on season three of the TV series. It's up at thebottomlineshow.com, and of course, it's getting five-star reviews everywhere you turn. Uh, Jerry, talk about what, what it's like to know that you've got, you know, you know kind of where the show is going, and then you see the final cut, and you see how few people respond, and then you're writing these things. How much time typically does it take to write a novel, and how much time are you working with in terms terms of knowing that their production schedule is always moving forward. Yeah, that's that's been the real challenge is that we want the novels to come out pretty close to when the, the series comes out. So I'm writing these based on the scripts. 
And sometimes the script is a little bit different than the way it's actually shot too. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll write the novel and then I'll see the the show and I might make, make a few tweaks here and there, but uh, that's one of the things Dallas is good about. He says, you know, the, the novels should be able to stand alone, even if they're a little different, give, give the viewer, the reader a, a new experience. And uh, so that's, that's been a challenge, but it's also been fun. Which character surprised you the most in season three based on, I'm not talking about what you saw on the screen, but what, as the novel finished up, you went, wow, I didn't, I, I didn't think that was going to be as full or developed or sad as it turned out to be. I think, um, I mean, this is really the the rough story of, of Simon Peter and, and his wife, Eden. Mm-hmm. We know from scripture that he was married um, because his mother-in-law falls ill. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you can't have a mother-in-law unless you're married. <laughs> right. But that's all we know. And so I think Dallas and his co-writer have done a great job of fleshing out that relationship. And, and uh, you know, she suffers a, a loss, a miscarriage. And um, he is insensitive, Sam, Simon is, when he comes home from the road and doesn't really even ask about her. And so she doesn't tell him about this at first. She knows how it's going to affect him. And they both have the same response when they see Jesus performing miracles, even raising people from the dead, and they have to wonder why them and not us. Right. We've given up everything to follow you. Uh, Simon gave up his profession. Um, he's he's uh, left his wife for long periods to travel with Jesus, and then this happens. And uh, that's the that's the real heart of the story and the gut, guts of the story. And uh, I often tell tell writers, you know, I have a couple thousand writers that study online with me. And I say, I, I quote the poet Robert Frost, who says, if there are no tears in the writer, there'll be no tears in the reader. Mm. And believe me, there were tears in the writer reading <laughs> this, this part of it. And uh, and seeing uh, Simon Peter come back to, to his faith and, and also to plead with Jesus to never let him go. Mm. It's such a powerful uh, story arc, and I know having Lada Silva come on the Bottom Line Show and talk about what that was like, and the outpouring that she got from viewers who just said, "Oh, you're 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 singing my song. Thank you for for touching that nerve." That must be a real uh, gratifying, but at the same time challenging moment for you as a writer, Jerry Jenkins, to say, "Look, we're telling the story of Jesus, but these characters around him are real, and he did have those interactions with them." And and you're even getting into—I hate to use the D word here—but some disappointment you know, with, with God from whether it's little James or uh, Simon and, and, and Eden. And the, how do you temper that? Because I think our Western minds, especially we want Jesus to always be heroic. We don't want to, we don't want to give the impression he's letting people down. Right. And that's been the problem, I think, with, with Jesus shows, TV shows and movies. Uh, we watch these and and because we're in the faith, we're thrilled with the, the stories and when they're familiar to us, we love to see the miracles and the sermons and that type of thing. Yeah. But Jesus is always portrayed as ethereal and above it all, you know, marching around and speaking in King James English. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're trying to say, look, we want people to know Jesus and love him more and be led back to their Bible and back to their church, and back to their faith. How do we make him relatable when he is God and he's perfect? Well, he has a sense of humor and he also has limited himself voluntarily. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I mean, he, he could fix everybody. He could raise everybody from the dead. He could make everybody well, um, but he chooses not to. And there are questions that won't be answered this side of heaven. And uh, he has to, to live that out 
and, and teach that lesson. And Dallas and his his co-writers and the people on that cast and crew get this response from all over the world when they see characters that are no longer stained glass window figures or statues. They're real people like you and me. Right. We can't really identify with Jesus uh, in his perfection. We can identify with his sense of humor, his camaraderie, but we can definitely identify with these flawed people that he chose to put around him who are constantly disappointing him. And then mm -hmm. they're, they're sometimes disappointed in what he does or doesn't do as well. And uh, it's, it's been so gratifying to hear from people that feel like they're, they're being seen now they're being recognized mm. see themselves in these characters. I love you. I love the idea that you, what you're doing here is giving him that humanity, that the Emmanuel God with us literally says, I mean, what about, you know, being in very nature, God took on the form of a servant. I mean, we, we kind of gloss over that in the new Testament without realizing that what we're saying is, Hey, I mean, I want to be seen. And I've heard so many people, you know, who have that Zacchaeus moment, you know, where they're like, I, I, he sees me, he gets me, he understands me. And, and you, you draw this out, not only on the television show that Dallas is doing the chosen, but also this novel series that's written by Dallas's dad, uh, Jerry B. Jenkins, uh, who doesn't have a bad resume or pedigree <laughs> to post about on his own with 72 million books sold 21 new york times bestsellers thousands of people learning the craft from jerry b jenkins it's a privilege to have him on the program here on the bottom line show today to talk about novel three in the chosen novel series it's called the chosen and i will give you rest there's a link for the book up at the bottom line show.com how's the writing going for the novel for season four well believe it or not i've actually finished that novel too oh yeah. wow we're trying to to get these things so they're they're more simultaneous and so that mm -hmm. the, the book will be ready. It, the book won't be out in time for the, the start of the season, but people will be able to see the season. And then pretty soon after that, we hope to, to release the book. That's great. How do you keep the pace? I mean, I remember first meeting you back when you and Tim were writing Left Behind and you were doing something like a new novel on the book of Revelation every six months or something, which is just an, unheard of, you know, in your world. How is the pace for you and other projects that you're working on? How are you doing? Um, I'm trying to to uh, to make the pace a little bit slower. Um, this is my 50th year as a published author. Wow. And uh, I'm going to do book five of The Chosen. And I'm I'm looking at at maybe a, a writing memoir. Mm -hmm. uh, so whereas I for for half a century I've averaged about four books a year. Well, I've just about cut that in, in half. Well, I don't sing or dance or preach. You know, this, <laughs> the gift I have I feel kind of obligated to exercise it. Uh -huh. Oh, I love it. Well, and you remind me of a guy I worked for. I worked construction for a guy at my church when I was in college, and uh, he he told me that he told his wife every day, "Honey, I'm only going to work half day today, only twelve hours." <laughs> and uh, that, I mean, you know, when you when you're in business for yourself, and so you cutting down your workload from four books a year to two is still uh, better than most of us will ever do. And I, for one, personally, I'll fanboy on you here. Can't wait for your autobiography. I, I you've done such a great job of uh, memorializing the lives of others. Uh, your life. Uh, is just fascinating, just the little bits and pieces that we know. So I'm sure all uh, 300,000 words or whatever that turns out to be, you know, you can be right up there with Barbara Streisand's thousand page memoir and it would be it would be riveting jerry jenkins is with me today here on the bottom line novel number three in the chosen series the chosen and i will give you rest is the theme and of course you've got a picture of eden simon peter's wife on the cover that was really the driving part of this uh of this sequence uh jerry how can we pray for you in these days ahead i know you've mentioned you've been a little under the weather and uh um and it's it's challenging you know as we you know have these 
the feet of clay and these bodies of flesh that we have to deal with. How can we be praying for you and your family in the days ahead? Well, we're we're doing pretty well, um, but uh, I, I'm feeling my age, and and uh, when I when I do get under the weather, it takes a little longer to recover, uh, just for stamina. And uh, I'm going to remain consistent, and I want to finish well. So yeah. if people would pray that that I would do that, I'd be I'd be grateful. Absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to many, many more years of uh, reading the writings of Jerry B. Jenkins. And of course, as long as The Chosen is going, we know we're going to get at least uh, another four or five more novels out of you with regard to how that works as well. So, uh, and, and congratulations. I know you've mentioned this several times being on the program, but this is the first time I ever read your bio on Amazon. And it says, Jerry B. Jenkins, the father of Dallas Jenkins. And I know that that's, that's something that's a, a badge that you wear very proudly, though he wears the badges, your son, equally proudly as well. Yeah, he used to be known as Jerry Jenkins' son. I'm now yeah. known as Dallas Jenkins' father, and may it ever be so. I couldn't be more thrilled. Yeah, I can tell. I can absolutely tell. Jerry B. Jenkins, the novel number three from The Chosen, The Chosen and I Will Give You Rest, is now available. We've got a link up for it at thebottomlineshow.com. Jerry, thank you. God bless you from all of us here at The Bottom Line Show. I appreciate it, Roger. Always good to be with you. And that's how we wrapped it up, my conversation with author Jerry B. Jenkins. Today here on The Bottom Line, as a way of tipping the hat to encourage you to go see uh, season four of The Chosen, which is now in theaters this weekend, Super Bowl weekend, episodes four, five, and six are on the big screen. And I uh, encourage you to go last week uh, on 2,500 screens, over $5 million worth of tickets purchased, came in number two at the box office. How will episodes four, five, and six of season four go? Well, it remains to be seen. But one thing is for absolute certain, here on Good News Friday on the Bottom Line Show, we have episode of the novel based on uh, season three of The Chosen, and we have not one, not two, but three copies of the book. See, three copies for season three. 800-227-5278 if you'd like to win one. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. The number to get you through to the bottom line. Now, on the other side of this break, the big game, of course, is coming up this Sunday. And I have a bold prediction about Super Bowl 58. I know for a fact that when the final whistle is blown and all the confetti is strewn, and one team is lifting the championship trophy, I can guarantee you that the quarterback from that team will be your brother in Christ. How do I know this? Some sort of spiritual clairvoyance? Not exactly, but we'll talk about why that is important and why it's not. Coming up next as the bottom line continues. For more than 50 years, Dennis Wilson has been offering better alternatives to what the market offers when it comes to investments like certificates of deposit and real estate investment trusts. Dennis's 3D account pays even better than market interest rate. Here's Dennis to explain. So what is a 3D account and how does it work? A 3D account is a real estate-backed investment without Wall Street risk. It pays an amazing interest of 7% for the next three years. At the end of three years, you can take your money out so you can see it's definitely not a REIT, or you can reinvest it at 7% in a new program. Go ahead and call today and ask about the 7% account. And then while you're on the phone and ask about our accounts that are based even higher amounts for funds over 250,000. Learn more about Dennis Wilson's 3D Money account, the better alternative to the Real Estate Investment Trust. Call 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial, simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. My thanks again to Jerry B. Jenkins, the author of the novelized version of season three of The Chosen. It was called, And I Will Give You Rest. 
to commemorate season four hitting theaters. And we'll have Jerry back on here in a couple of weeks to talk about that novel. But we do have not one, not two, but three copies of the novel, The Chosen, and I Will Give You Rest. Now, this is the novel based on season three. Remember, th season four on the big screen, season three, the books are right here. We have well, not one, but not two, but three copies of the book to give away. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Now, before the break, I did something I don't think I've ever done here on the Bottom Line Show, Super Bowl coming up this Sunday, and I made a prediction about, an, an ironclad prediction. Now, I'm not a gambler. I don't play the points. As a matter of fact, if you grew up in Los Angeles and you liked sports radio, you uh, as did I, I used to listen on the way home every weekday afternoon, 5 or 5.30, to AM 710, KMPC it was called at the time, and the Jim Healy Show. And Jim Healy was a sports guy. He had been around forever, did uh, boxing and all sorts of different sports. But Jim Healy, he had this comedy show long before there was the internet. And it was just kind of sound bites and memes. I mean, I don't know if the show would even survive today because people can find this on TikTok. But he used to talk about gamblers. And he was always just notorious for you know teasing people about who spent a lot of time uh, playing the odds. This year's Super Bowl, if you were a gambling person, and I'm not, I just pay attention to point spreads and who's favored. And, and, and you, you may be in a, uh, a pool at your office, maybe. Uh, maybe your, your church might have a fundraiser where they, you know, you put 50 cents a square or a dollar a square, whatever it is, and who's going to get the first touchdown and who's going to be ahead at the end of the first quarter and who's going to complete the first pass. I mean, there's so many things you can you can play around with. Now, I know a lot of pastors have been pretty outspoken this week in particular saying, hey, look, gambling is a sin. Do not gamble. I mean, we see in Scripture that the soldiers cast lots for, you know, Jesus' two earthly possessions when he was on the cross. And that was the way I mean, they, they, they cast lots for a lot of things back in those days. But in terms of gambling, I mean, there's a difference between recreational having some fun and gambling. If you if you got 15 bucks to spend on a movie and you don't know how good it's going to turn out, that's kind of a gamble. If you spend a couple of dollars on a soda pop or a candy bar, that's a gamble with your body. So, I mean, if you get right down to it, you could really split hairs. But when you get to the point where it's compulsive and it's putting your family in financial ruin and whatever, you really got to be careful. So I say this with trepidation. As far as I know, as of right now, the odds makers say that the game is literally a draw, that the Kansas City Chiefs are about a one point or one and a half point favorite over the San Francisco 49ers to win the Super Bowl. And, you know, the reason that that's so interesting is oftentimes one team is a huge favorite. All that means is for all the people who are betting on this in Atlantic City and Las Vegas and all the other places where you can you can legally gamble, they're saying that more people were betting initially on Kansas City than on San Francisco, so they gave bigger odds, meaning that the point spread was weighted, so they would encourage people to gamble. Please know that if you are even tempted to do something like that, there are two rules in the gambling world. Rule number one is that the house always wins. And rule number two is that the house wins even more. So they're not doing this for your benefit. So, you know, it, it is, it, it's a gamble nonetheless. But one thing that you can take to the bank, absolutely, is that when the championship Vince Lombardi trophy is raised at the end of Super Bowl uh, 58, I, I always get the Roman numerals mixed up, at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas of all places, uh, that the guy who hoists the trophy for the quarterback from the winning team 
will be a man of faith. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that either of these guys is going to become a Christian in the fourth quarter because they threw the winning touchdown pass. But rather, Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes and San Francisco 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy are each guys who are very, very outspoken in their Christian faith. After the uh, Chiefs beat the top-seeded Baltimore Ravens in the AFC Championship game last a couple weeks ago, uh, Mahomes gave glory to God. After Brock Purdy led arguably one of the greatest comebacks in NFL playoff history as the 49ers overtook Bob Duco's Detroit Lions. And by the way, if you want to have some fun, friendly wager, remember on NCR a couple weeks ago, National Crawford Roundtable podcast, Bob Duco, long-suffering Detroit Lions fan, and Roger Marsh holding down the fort in the People's Republic of California. Our two main affiliates, of course, are KBRT in LA area and KCBC in the Northern California, San Francisco Bay area. And Bob put out the wager and said, look, if the Lions win, you have to wear a 49ers hat on next week's NCR. And if the Niners win, I'll wear a Niners hat. And I unfortunately had to miss the broadcast, but if you watch the video, Bob got the hat. Anyway, um, the Brock Purdy comeback thing, down 27 points or whatever, remarkable what the 49ers did to the Lions. I think the game is going to be uh, challenging. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It should be highly entertaining. I don't think it'll be a blowout. But one thing is for certain, um, you know, th- th- this is, it's so nice to see that happening where men of faith are elevated to this platform. On the other side of this break, though, I want to throw in one extra caveat that might explain why so much of this is happening these days. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. I can't say enough about preborn, and I'm going to keep talking about them because I love what this organization stands for. Basically, what they stand for is the truth, the truth and the science, the truth and the science and being honest about the situation that a woman is facing when she is facing an unplanned pregnancy. Did you know this is a problem within the church? 60% of the women who have abortions in the United States do so after already having given birth at least once. 54% of the women who have abortions in the United States are church-going women if not Bible-believing, born-again Christians. So what does that say? It tells me that we in the church need to do a better job of educating people as to what's really going on when a woman tests positive for pregnancy, as they say. Go to a pre-born clinic, they'll do the pregnancy test, then they will do an ultrasound. And the ultrasound technology will show you the pictures of the child in the womb, and then they'll tell you the three options, not the two that the abortion clinics. Abortion clinics say either you're gonna be a parent that's gonna be expensive and ruin your life, just have an abortion, the third option is adoption, and Preborn recommends adoption every single time a woman comes in with an unplanned pregnancy. 85% of the women who go to a preborn clinic and have the ultrasound choose life for their baby. You can help in this effort. Make your one time donation to Preborn today. Go to kbrightradio.com and click on the Preborn banner. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Last call for our Good News Friday giveaways today. Start to finish by Mark Dance, the outstanding book on helping pastors stay resilient in tough times. Um, We've got one copy of that. And also Jerry Jenkins, the novel for season three of The Chosen. Of course, season four has been released now. It's in theaters. And you can see that this weekend if you want to. But if you want to have a good read, we have not one, not two, but three copies of that novel to give away at 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Patrick Mahomes gives glory to God after the Chiefs won the AFC Championship. Brock Purdy, the quarterback of the 49ers, gave glory to God as well 
after his team came back from a 20, it was a 17 point deficit. They scored 27 unanswered points and wound up winning the game 34 to 31. Um, now the, this is going to be a rematch of Super Bowl 54. The Chiefs wound up winning that one 31 to 20. But you know, it, it, both of these coaches talk or both of these players rather talking about their faith and how important it is to them. But maybe part of the reason is it starts with the top. Uh, Kansas City Chiefs chairman and CEO Clark Hunt uh, gave a post-game interview following the Sunday win a couple weeks ago. And here's what he said. It's such a special night for us. First of all, I want to give God the glory. I want to congratulate the Ravens on an amazing year. And then four years ago, you handed us the first Lamar Hunt trophy, and I gave it to my mom, and the first thing she did was kiss it. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but it's so nice that he gave glory to God as well. It starts at the top. It starts with the ownership. It starts with the leadership. But the good news, I think, that we can look at this too, is I don't believe God really is interested in who wins the game, but I know that God will allow adversity, hardship, or even perhaps a player to be on a losing team for his ultimate glory. God, may we continue to seek your will and your ultimate glory as we endure hardships that shape us and mold us. In Jesus' name, amen. KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your day. And Rabbi Schneider, Discovering the Jewish Jesus, coming up next. For those who remain on the network, more controversy at Super Bowl 58, and it involves something called the Black National Anthem. Does it need to be performed at Super Bowl 58 side-by-side side with the quote-unquote U.S. National Anthem? I think it does, but not for the reasons that you might think. On the other side of this break, we'll do a little analysis, balance, and clarity on the hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Get its history together, the history of the National Anthem, and then you can make a better decision as to how you're going to have that conversation with your friends and family members this weekend. That's all coming up next as the bottom line continues. Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show, or welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, the Super Bowl 58 edition of the program, and congratulations to everyone who's been calling in for the uh, the the prizes that we've been giving away today. The book Start to Finish by Pastor Mark Dance about pastors building resilience and with so many pastors getting ready to leave the pastorate. Uh, this is a great resource to have from Lifeway Pastors. And then also Jerry B. Jenkins, the author, of, he do, he's doing the novelized versions of The Chosen. His son Dallas, the creator there. And Jerry knows a thing or two about writing a good novel. Uh, if you remember the 62 million copies of the Left Behind series that were sold, uh, he writes in a way that people love to read. and It's very engaging. He has done a novelized version of seasons one and two and now has come out with season three of The Chosen just in time for season four to be in theaters. So 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. We've got not one, not two, but three copies of the novelized version of season three of The Chosen that we're giving away as well today here to commemorate The Chosen season four's release in theaters Super Bowl weekend. Okay, when the Super Bowl announced the lineup for the halftime show and the pregame show, you know, everybody gets all excited because the Super Bowl halftime show has become one of the most watched events in the, uh, in the, uh, in the world. Um, the game itself, of course, is highly watched, but, you know, I, I don't know how long it's been since they started doing the really big productions. I was thinking back to uh, the Super Bowl, was it 1991? Bills and Giants, I believe that was the first of the Bills' four straight, um, you know, <laughs> drubbings, as it were. But they were talking about how the Giants were able to beat the Bills, was it 20-19, to 19, 
uh, not only because Scott Norwood missed the kick you know, as the time expired, but also because the time of possession was so slanted toward the Giants. They held onto the ball. They literally kept the ball out of the hands of the Buffalo Bills for two-thirds of the game. Time of possession, Giants 41, Bills 19. But then also, <clears throat> there was the halftime show, which was highly patriotic because we were about to enter the Gulf War. And that went on for a while. Somebody actually did a real-time tabulation as to how long it took for the Bills to get their offense back on the field because the Giants held the ball at the end of the first half. There was the long halftime show. Then the Giants got the ball to start the second half. Someone estimated it took them about two hours of Jim Kelly and his team sitting on the sideline before they actually got to go in and take a snap. That might have had something to do with it as well. But the Super Bowl halftime show has become legendary. And this year will be no exception, I'm sure, though I'll be perfectly honest with you, I have no idea who's performing. I, all I know is that they announced the lineup and then somebody else goes, hey, why didn't you pick them or him? or th-? I don't know. So, But I do know a thing or two about the pregame show. Because for the, let's see, 20, 21, 22, 23, for the fifth consecutive year, the NFL has announced that in addition to someone singing God Bless America and someone singing the Star Spangled Banner, our national anthem, there will also be a performance of a song called Lift Every Voice and Sing. Now, Lift Every Voice and Sing has been uh, played at every Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Actually, they've been doing this since Super Bowl 50, so this will be the ninth consecutive year that they've done it. This year, the song will be performed by Grammy Award-winning R&B singer Andra Day, or maybe it's Andra Day. Uh, last year, I believe it was Cheryl Lee Ralph from Abbott Elementary who did it. Uh, you get the idea that One of the reasons why this has been happening. Now, Post Malone, seeing that guy with all the tattoos on his face, is going to sing America the Beautiful. And Reba McIntyre is going to sing the national anthem. But it's not Andra Day who's got everybody's knickers in a twist. It's the fact that Lift Every Voice and Sing has been referred to unofficially, but for the past hundred and plus years, it's been referred to as the Black National Anthem. And just the announcement that there's going to be the national anthem and the black national anthem has a lot of people all twisted and nuts. Now, I'll be honest with you. Prior to all of this kerfluffle in the Super Bowl starting about a decade ago, I was not familiar with the importance of the song. I had heard of the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, but in all honesty, I'd never sung it. Never been part of a group where people were in fact singing it and didn't really understand the gravity of the song. Was it that African-Americans would listen to Francis Scott Key's, you know, uh, the Ballad of Fort McHenry or whatever that got put to music and became our U.S. National Anthem? Did it really bother them? I mean, a lot of people will defend the National Anthem of the United States and say, hey, come on, the nation was founded in 1776 and these battles were happening in the early 1800s and this has been our National Anthem and it's really kind of held us together. But when you look at the actual hymn itself, lift every voice and sing, find out the context of when it was written, and then look at the timeline as to when it was released, when it was given the so-called Negro National Anthem designation, and that was by the NAACP. And then you look at when Congress actually enacted legislation to name the Star-Spangled Banner as our National Anthem, you might have a slightly different appeal, a slightly different uh, crux of the song. 
Now, Lift Every Voice and Sing was written by a couple of brothers. Uh, James Weldon Johnson wrote the lyrics, and his brother Jay Rosamond Johnson wrote the music. Uh, Weldon Johnson was the older. The context is this song was written, I mean, these guys were both born 1871, 1873, respectively. It made its premiere in 1900. And basically, the, the Brothers Johnson in this case, not those Brothers Johnson, but, you know, the Brothers Johnson from the 19th century. Basically, they said they, it, it, they wrote the song as a prayer. And the background, the, 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 uh, the, the inspiration, if you will, was that of the biblical exodus. The idea that God's children who had been in bondage would be free one day in the promised land. Now, what's interesting about this, it's, it's the, the book has been adopted by many, or the song has been adopted by many different denominations. There are over 40 Christian hymnals nationwide that actually include this as one of their songs. Um, James Weldon Johnson was the chairman of the Florida Baptist Academy in Jacksonville, Florida. And he wanted to write a poem to commemorate the birth of Abraham Lincoln. Now, what's interesting, of course, um, Abraham Lincoln is attributed, of course, with the Emancipation Proclamation and, you know, uh, the ending of the Civil War. And many people will look to him and say, this is the, uh, uh, you know, the kind of personification of how we ended slavery in the United States. So that an African-American pastor would want to write something to honor his name is, I think, is very admirable. There are many other people who say, wait a minute, Lincoln's opinion of the slave movement and ending it was pragmatic more than anything else. It wasn't like a deep, uh, something that was a part of his DNA, something that was part of his soul in a ministry. It was more of a, uh, we need to do this because we're going to have cacophony in this country if we don't. So when James Weldon Johnson wrote this poem, it was ostensibly to honor Abraham Lincoln's birthday. At the same time, though, there was a bit of a civil rights movement going on, as you were maybe well aware, because it's really naive of us to say, well, you know what happened in 1865, Juneteenth, it freed the slaves, and 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, problem solved. Because we all know. I mean, let's face it, I, I hate using that phrase, we all know. But if you do a little bit of history digging, you know that from 1865 to 1964, nearly a, a century went by where we did not have, quote unquote, slavery, but we did, in fact, have segregation, the legendary Jim Crow laws in the South. We're in the Reconstruction era, and, you know, it was one thing for people, I mean, let's, let's face it, the Emancipation Proclamation was written in September of 1862. It was delivered formally on January 1st, 1863. The Civil War did not end till 1865, but 1865 also was when the final slaves historically remembered. They were in Texas, and on June 19, 1865, that's when the final slaves found out they were free. Two and a half years after ostensibly they were set free, they were told they were free. And then for the next 99 years, they lived, quote-unquote, as free people, but there were many, many, many laws enacted that made it virtually impossible for African Americans to experience full freedom. Now, I say this coming from the background of someone who was born and raised in California. California, who's forever trying to run around and issue reparations. California was established as a free state. There's never been slavery in California. Our DNA is 
um, you know, a different deal with Native Americans and Mexican Americans and, you know, the missions and all the other things that we've had to reconcile with. But Lift Every Voice and Sing was written as a poem. And it was first resided by a group of about 500 students at Florida Baptist Academy in Jacksonville in 1900. When J. Roseman Johnson heard the poem that his brother wrote that simultaneously honored President Lincoln's birthday, but also acknowledged the fact that here we were 35 years after the Emancipation Proclamation and Juneteenth and everything, and we were still dealing with this issue. Um, it was very, very powerful. The Johnsons relocated to New York City in 1901. They wanted to pursue a career in Broadway, but the song began to spread and it spread, it spread because now the poem had been set to music and school children in black communities kept singing it. The children in Jacksonville kept singing it. When they went off to other schools, they taught it to their friends. 20 years later, it was being sung all over the South and in other parts of the country. So how then did it wind up being named the so-called Black National Anthem? We'll take a look at that coming up next as the bottom line continues. For more than 50 years, Dennis Wilson has been offering better alternatives to what the market offers when it comes to investments like certificates of deposit and real estate investment trust. Dennis's 3D account pays even better than market interest rate. Here's Dennis to explain. So what is a 3D account and how does it work? A 3D account is a real estate-backed investment without Wall Street risk. It pays an amazing interest of 7% for the next three years. At the end of three years, you can take your money out. So you can see it's definitely not a REIT. Or you can reinvest it at 7% in a new program. Go ahead and call today and ask about the 7% account. And then while you're on the phone and ask about our accounts that pays even higher amounts for funds over 250000 Learn more about Dennis Wilson's 3D Money account, the better alternative to the Real Estate Investment Trust. Call 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial, simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. little analysis, balance, and clarity for you. If you're going to watch the Super Bowl this Sunday, they have a big pregame show. I think it lasts for about six hours. It really does last a long time. But right before we get to the opening of the game, the coin toss and everything like that, three songs will be sung. The first will be America the Beautiful, sung by Post Malone. I can only imagine what that's going to sound like. And again, I've never heard this guy's music. I only know him as the guy with the face tattoos who opened a bunch of Raising Cane's restaurants. Okay. The national anthem will conclude this little trio. And that's sung by Reba McIntyre. You can't get any more God and country than Reba McIntyre singing the Star Spangled Banner. But sandwiched in the middle is R&B singer Andra Day singing Lift Every Voice and Sing, which has historically been recognized as the Black National Anthem. And it's really dividing Americans. On the one side, you've got a lot of African-Americans saying it's about time. This is a great song. This speaks for us. This is empowering. We're glad the NFL has been including this in the pregame show for the past nine years. By the way, if you're hearing about this for the first time and you're a little upset, you're about a decade behind. But also the NFL is trying, like other organizations, to be more inclusive and DEI and things like that. And that sets a lot of folks in the Anglo community in the wrong direction. We already have a national anthem. Why do we need a black one? Well, I want to suggest that there is room for both songs to peacefully coexist. And I believe the reason will become evident <laughs> somewhere along the way. Now, in 1919, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, also known as the NAACP, 
dubbed Lift Every Voice and Sing as the so-called Negro National Anthem. It had power in voicing a cry for liberation and affirmation in African-American people, they've said. So it's been called the Negro National Anthem. It's been referred to as the Black National Anthem. Now, Timothy Askew, an associate professor at Black, uh, Black Clark University, Clark Atlanta University, says calling it a Black National Anthem basically impl implicates a desire of separatism. The lyrics do not specifically refer to uh, everyone race. White commentators do the same thing. They say, but in the opposite direction. Well, I'm going to read the lyrics to you. This is the poem written by uh, Reverend Johnson. And you tell me how this hits you, okay? First verse, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. And remember, Reverend Johnson chose this imagery as the exodus of God's people out of slavery to the promised land. So far, verse number one, lift every voice and sing, sounds like it's pretty universal for all Americans. Here's verse two, stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died, yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers died? We have come over a way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered, out of the gloomy past till now we stand at last where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. It's a beautiful verse. It's a beautiful lyric. And again, when we talk about, you know, they're speaking specifically about uh, African-Americans who had come before them. You know, our fathers had died. You know, uh, we have come over a way that uh, t with tears had been watered and treading a path through the blood of the slaughtered. I mean, that's all, that's real. That's documented. You can't escape that. But by the time you get to the third verse, Ask yourself now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't want to taint this for you, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, when you think about what's happening in the world and the moral cultural battle that's happening between good and evil, as more people in America identify as none of the above, either having no faith at all, being atheist, agnostic, or whatever, and then people who identify as living by a biblical worldview. Listen to this third verse of Lift Every Voice and Sing. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who hast brought us thus far on the way, thou who has by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path, we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we meet thee. Lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand, true to our God, true to our native land. Now, of course, if you're coming at this from the perspective of African-Americans, you're saying we are staying true to you, God, and we will never forget our homeland, our heritage, what made us as a people and who are now here. That's honorable. That's noble, I believe. But then think about us as Christians. How many times do you hear me say this on the Bottom Line Show? Citizens of heaven, residents of earth. 
So when we think of being living a life that is true to our God and true to our native land, what are we talking about? Remember, we are here on this earth, living where we are in the U.S. and listening to the Bottom Line Show for such a time as this right now. But ultimately, whose are we? To whom do we belong? And where does our real citizenship lie? What is our native land? Remember when God created the heavens and the earth and created mankind to dwell in the Garden of Eden? That was the ideal. Mankind sinned. Adam and Eve did sin. They ate the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate from that fruit. All of a sudden, they knew the difference between good and evil. God had created this perfect world, said that everything that he, was cre- he had created was good, created mankind, said that was good, and you take care of all the goodness that I created. And there are still some people today, I heard a couple of pundits on a Christian podcast just not too long, maybe earlier this week. And they were talking about the fact that they don't believe in the original sin. They don't believe in the fact that we are sinful and need to be redeemed from that because when God created us, he said that it was good. Without realizing that God created Adam, that was good. God created Eve for Adam and thus Adam for Eve, and that was good. But when sin entered the camp, what happened to Adam and Eve? They could not dwell in the holy, pure, good place of God anymore, and they were banished from the garden. Angels situated with a flaming sword, gone from Eden. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, how many Christians have suffered in silence, have shed those tears of anguish because of persecution, real persecution. We see some of it here in the U.S. We have no idea what it's like in other parts of the world. And we don't know what it's like to see Christians living in ancient Rome in the first century who were serving as Roman candles during gladiator games because the Romans thought it would be interesting to light a Christian's hair on fire and watch them burn to death. I mean, if we can get a little bit of historical context here, then you see that these words that were written by people who came to the U.S. in slavery, who were bound up in slavery, born into slavery, and then had been freed, but then had to live that surreal existence and experience of being freed people who were still kind of in bondage to mindsets that said, you'll never be the same level as us. And how the one place that people on the whole could find that level ground was in the church. So why do we need a song like Lift Every Voice and Sing? Besides the fact that it's gorgeous, it's beautiful imagery, it's awesome poetry. And then when you put the song behind, the tune behind it, it's great. But the way it was presented to the American people, well, we already have a national anthem. Why do we need a black national anthem, you might say? Let's take a look at the timeline and see who got there first and then see how that changes our perception of this. It's coming up next as the bottom line continues. One of the things I appreciate, and I know you do too, about preborn is the fact that they tell you the truth about where you are in pregnancy. You know, it, 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 it's amazing how the National Institute of Health and the CDC wants to classify pregnancy as a quote-unquote illness, so then they can prescribe quote-unquote treatment medication in the form of an abortion pill to end the abortion. Well, that's crazy. We know, you know and I know, that God creates each of us in the womb of our mothers. And he creates each of us uniquely for a purpose. And 85% of the women who go to preborn clinics and they don't hear the, the propaganda from the abortion industry that says you, your two choices are either abortion or misery, that there are three options. And the third one involves basically 
choosing life for the child and releasing that child for adoption. I want to thank a couple of people for their very generous donations to Preborn. Dean in National City made a $1,400 donation. Dave in Lake Forest, a $500 donation. Uh, and also Edward in Norfolk, Nebraska, who listens online with a 48 monthly dollar donation. Uh, go to kbrightradio.com. Click on the preborn banner and make your best donation today. It's completely tax deductible. 100% of your donation goes to ultrasound technology, and we're saving lives and saving babies through preborn. Click on kbrightradio.com, hit the preborn banner today. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. It's kind of becoming an annual event. Somebody finds out that uh, uh, whoever's carrying the Super Bowl is going to have the Black National Anthem performed at the, at the Super Bowl and get their knickers in a twist. And I have to admit, when I first heard of this controversy maybe a decade or so ago, I had heard about Lift Every Voice and saying I did not know the history of it being named the Black National Anthem or so-called. And that was a uh, uh, self-determination that came from the leaders of the NAACP 1917, 1918. It was really just kind of a movement that spread in the South. And it, it was started at a, a Christian school at a Florida Christian Academy for African-American students in 1900. Started with a poem written by Reverend Johnson. His brother set it to music and people just started singing it. The Johnsons moved to New York and it became very popular. But people will say, well, now, wait a minute, though. You can't have this as the black national anthem. We already have a national anthem. Francis Scott Key, oh, say, can you see? Remember the British bombardment of Fort McHenry in uh, 1814 during the War of 1812? The poem called The Defense of Fort McHenry, published within a week. And they put a tune to it, the song To Answer On in Heaven. And that song with Key's lyrics became known as the Star Spangled Banner. And then it became the national anthem, Right. Well, not necessarily. Uh, Francis Scott Key was a lawyer in Maryland and Washington, D.C. He was nominated for district attorney in D.C. Uh, he served from 1833 to 1841, a man of faith. He was part of the Episcopalian Church. During the War of 1812, in August uh, 1814, and then on September 7th of that year, uh, Key wrote the account. And he actually did some legal defense. Now, some people say, you can't use that song because Francis Scott Key was a slave owner. But in actual fact, he did purchase a slave in somewhere around 1800. He did at one point own six enslaved people. But if he owned six enslaved people in 1820, he wound up freeing seven of them in the 1830s. There were still eight in his family's possession when he died, but this is a man who, over the course of his lifetime, freed several hundred slaves and was very vocal in his, uh, well, his desire to see that actually uh, no longer be the case, slavery. He was, a, he was quite the uh, abolitionist. But this whole idea of, you know, we've got a, na a, black, a national anthem, so why should we have one? that is the so-called Black National Anthem? Well, how about this? It was in 1919 that the NAACP suggested that James Weldon Johnson's hymn should be referred to as the Black National Anthem. Do you know that the Star Spangled Banner became the National Anthem of the United States in 1931? Yeah, more than a decade after the Black National Anthem was so dubbed the U.S. National Anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, which people have been singing for over 100 years, eventually, finally became 
the uh, national anthem of the United States. I believe it was Jim Clyburn, uh, House Minority Whip, uh, who suggested, that, or Majority Whip, rather, who suggested that if the Star-Spangled Banner is our national anthem, that Lift Every Voice and Sing be designated the national hymn of the United States. Now, wouldn't the separation of church and state people really love that, right? I think there's room for both. And the reason is, if you look at the words, you they are just dripping with meaning and symbolism and truth and power, not only for African-Americans who had this experience written literally in the beginning of Jim Crow America and segregation, saying, you know, we're, we're legally free, but are people still uh, resonating with it? Well, because of our faith in God, because of what he's done for us, because of the fact that he's the God of our weary years and the God of our silent tears, we can make that claim. But we as Christians can resonate with that and we can have that cognitive dissonance where we hold it both not only dear for the African-American community, but it's representative of Christians in the world throughout history. And shadowed beneath God's hand, we can forever stand true to our God and true to our true native land. That is good news. And that's the bottom line.